But I was curious about how did readers actually use this book? Mm-hmm. How did they actually mediate it and, and apply it to their own scholarship? You are listening to And If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. You are indeed listening to End of Love Remains. I am your sometimes virtuous, occasionally vile, but always virile host, Mike Levitt, mm-hmm. the, uh, the the blind rabbi Micah himself. Um, glad to be here. Glad to to in to um, glad to have you guys join us on this journey of um, craziness and joy. And all those things that, that make this podcast great. So please like, subscribe, make it viral. Do that thing you do. Um, and I'm so pumped to have Dr. James Russell back in great to be studio. Here. Yes, it's so good. Um, just a quick background on Dr. Russell. Um, he is a book historian here in Phoenix. Um, he completed his doctorate at the Institute of Medieval and Early Modern Studies at Durham University in the UK. James is interested in how material texts shape spiritual experiences, uh, focusing on early modern esoteric contemplative literature. He studies the traces readers have left behind in books and manuscripts in order to reconstruct the reading experiences of the past. I mean, that's like a, that's like a meta (laughs) meta reason (laughs) way of reading stuff. Like I'm not just going to read the text. I'm going to read the things that, 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 people thought about reading wrote to think and then i'm going to think about what that meant about what they were thinking about what they were reading about the text certainly yeah it's the history of the experience of reading uh reader reception studies is the 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 framework in which i put this project i'm interested in taking literature and foregrounding the agency of readers thinking about literature not as just this detached object or looking at books as solely an artifact but the way they shape the experiences of living people you know and i think the subject that we're going to talk about today probably exemplifies that more than just about any even in some ways even more than the bible which is hard to say because Mm -hmm. i think the the bible kind of is, is so ingrained in us but but this particular text is so bizarre and cool and interesting um and we're going to talk about that and the text we're going to talk about today is uh, i'm going to try it this is part Go for it part duh i'm going to try so you can the, do this i believe in you mike <laughs> <laughs> the, the hooper not nato machia polyphily polyphily polyphila you're almost all the way there Urgh, very good so yeah they, it's Someday I'll get my doctorate in pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, pronounce it for us. Sure. It's the Hupnerotomachia polyphily, which means the strife of love in a dream of he who loves many things. So let's break this title down to its Latin roots. Hypnos, sleep. Eros, romantic love. And machia, conflict or strife. Polyphily, you have poly meaning many and phil uh, meaning love. 
So it's been rendered as the strife of love in a dream of he who loves many things. And it is one of the most sumptuous, bizarre, intriguing books of the Renaissance. And it's why I, I chose to do my PhD on it. Oh, that's, that's, that's great. And by the way, that title just, just doesn't just grab you. Come on guys. Like that title just, it makes, it, it speaks to romance, like mm -hmm. in every way, like, and I don't mean romantic just as like a, in a, in a, like a romance novel or something like that, but, but like romantic in the, like, um, almost in the Russian sense, yeah. you know? like, 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 like tied to the land, tied to, to like the lover of life, the lover of people, the lover of women, the lover of like, like that's what it kind of like, and, and, and we'll get into the text itself, but, but that's what the title itself kind of makes me think of. It is. Um, one of the scholars of the Ubnaranamakia, Peter Dronke, said it's one of the psychological heights of the genre of romance. Wow. And when you look at the book, it's both a combination of an encyclopedia and a love story, which are two genres that you don't immediately seem to fit together. But in merging them, you see that the, the passion that Renaissance scholars had for antiquity, that it went beyond just a detached intellectual curiosity. It was almost erotic really in the way or in some ways even went into that uh their just complete love of antiquity and what it, you get a sense of what an exciting time it would have been and what it would be like to look over renaissance scholars shoulders mm. as they're uh absorbing the greek and latin classics and, and you got to do that a little bit as you studied this and started and and uh and studied the marginalia which is a term that i learned from our last podcast thank you dr russell right on. <laughs> uh um so and because because when you're when you're studying that you're you're again like i talked about before it's that meta idea of like you're you're reading into what is being read now that kind of makes me ask a question like how far as a modern, when I say modern in this context, a, a 2023 person, how far can we read into, um, or how much can we read into what they, they wrote down? Um, in other words, you know, how hard is it to remove our modern sensibilities from what they are um, writing? It's difficult. Um, but one thing you find in reading the marginalia, the notes that readers scribbled into the, the margins of this book is that they often overlap with modern critics. So what I did was I took modern commentaries on the Upnaranamakya and read them alongside the notes that Renaissance writers were putting in and, see, and saw that they would often converge on the same point. So mm. you get the sense in reading this that you're part of an intellectual tradition that goes back quite far. And I guess it's a fallacy to think that we can get into someone else's head, but this is one of the closest you can get to seeing the personal reading experiences. And that's what, what the reason I chose to work on marginalia is that in the humanities, I was a little disconcerted by the turn into sort of extreme postmodern theory, um, where it was so abstract and so detached from the actual text. I want to do something a little more empirical. I want to see can I show so, get, so getting into somebody's heads more empirical? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I like I points well taken. Yeah, I want to see what rather than speculating about authorial intent, see how did people actually read this book? Because the Umnaramakia has sort of become a symbol for the bizarre in Renaissance studies, and it's usually put on the shelf as just something to admire. 
but I was curious about how did readers actually use this book? Mm-hmm. How did they actually mediate it and and apply it to their own scholarship? And that's what turned me to the the marginal notes. That's 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 awesome. I love that. I, like that's just fantastic. One of the interesting and and most peculiar things about this particular book, if I'm not mistaken, are um, uh, the wood cuttings, as you say, the illustrations. Um, they're first of all they're beautiful, and 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 we'll, and we'll, we're going to add some um, pictures of them in, in the show notes and give some people some links so you can look at them. Um, but I think, uh, tell me if I'm right. They were more than just like trying to depict what was going on on the page, like you you might see in a children's book. Like like there, there's more to it than that. Talk about the illustrations, what they what they were, and how they were used, in, in the context of the text itself. Well, the Ubernatikamaki is considered one of the most beautiful books of the Renaissance. Uh, it is prized by collectors uh, and has usually attracted attention from the perspective of biblical uh, 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 bibliographical connoisseurship. Uh, so people often approach the woodcuts and leave the text aside, treating it kind of like a Laura Mipsum style filler. But the more time you spend with this book, you realize how elegantly text and image interplay with each other. Uh, and in it, not only how the woodcuts are with great typographical skill inserted into the, the flow of the text block, but also the way text is put into the woodcut. For example, the woodcuts include some selections in uh, Arabic and in Hebrew, which instead of rendering it with a typeface, the Arabic and the Hebrew was actually carved directly into the woodcut. Uh, so this book is just a visual feast and an intellectual feast. And that's one of the things that drew me to it because I'm, I'm very ADD. And this book is constant stimulation of, of the eye, the ear. It's an experience almost for all the senses. And then in the book, there's often vivid descriptions of scent and taste. Wow. Yeah. So uh, in some ways, like, um, I mean, I think it'd be, uh, I don't think you could, you could call it like a, um, uh, compared to like a modern movie or something, but, but maybe, um, the way you're describing it, it's almost like, like how, how poetry, the, the important things of poetry is not just the words themselves, but it's the sound. It's, mm-hmm. it's the, it's everything that surrounds those words and how it is, how the, how, like I said, it's, it's sound mixed with, with meaning where like this almost is like picture mi- mixed with meaning. It's, yes. it's the idea of like, okay, I, I'm supposed to use this as a tool to understand the text itself. Is that right? Or am I over, over my overplaying my hand here? No, <laughs> certainly it, it integrates with the text. In fact, one uh, copy uh, takes a, a given scene in the book. The book is set in a dream within a dream. Uh, and one of the things that Freud argued is that the dream is the place where the word no does not apply. So the author takes advantage of the dream space to create impossible structures that couldn't be constructed in reality. There's one woodcut, uh, which we can put an image of in the show notes, is of a pyramid that is unconstructably huge. But the author uses this pyramid as as a device to illustrate every different architectural feature found in Vitruvius's De Architectura on architecture. And one of the annotators in a copy of all places in the Buffalo County Public Library uh, took a, used this illustration of a pyramid 
as a way of making uh, essentially hyperlinks within the text. So he labeled different f architectural features on the pyramid with where those architectural features later occur oh, wow. within the book. And you can use it like a DVD menu. Like, you know how I know we're <laughs> right. entering the age of streaming, but in a DVD menu, you, you often have an image. You can click on different parts of the image yeah. to be taken to scenes in the movie. And there's very much a, a hypertextual uh, way that's, of framing this book. That's wild. That, I mean, that is, that's just wonderful. And, and again, like until we, we haven't even gotten into like what it's about and, and it's, it's crazy. Like you said, a dream within a dream. It's, it's, you know, inception. It is from inception. The, from the yeah. 1400s, late 1400s. But, uh, um, but I, I kind of want to still paint a picture for people. Like talk about the, the, the medium itself, like, um, the size, like how would people use it? How would people see it? How, like what, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to like. I, I'm still imagining like you, this couldn't have been a scroll, so it's definitely a folio of some sort. It is. Right? It's a folio size book. And then what? And and then how big is it? Like, talk about like the structure of the book itself, the physical structure. It's a folio, so it's a book that's where the pages are folded once. Uh, it's a relatively large book. Uh, there are, which is what. And so you get this experience that doesn't quite translate to the the 1999 English translation done by Jocelyn Godwin on the 500th anniversary of the book, that you get the sense of a it, it's large enough to fill your visual space. And it's large enough to give you lots of room to work with a pen on the margins. So one of my arguments is that this book is essentially a Renaissance activity book for intellectuals, that it contains games within the book that invites the readers to play with pen and ink. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That is absolutely fantastic. That, that it, and it becomes this like the playful dialogue over centuries, you know, as different scholars look at it and read it and, and compare, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Play is one of the themes that um, I foregrounded in approaching this book that people in the Renaissance, um, I read this book in a, I, I use the term ludic engagement, which is basically they played with it. it. They would look at a word in this constructed language and try to piece it into its Latin or Greek roots. Or there are even times when the book says, here's how you can draw an image. Here are the instructions. And you see readers actually rendering those images in the margins. So the book presents an intellectual game within the space of a dream where no does not apply. So you have free reign to uh, test your intellectual abilities on the book. Oh, that's cool. Talk about um, who wrote it. Like where, like where do we get, where did this come from? Well, the, the Ubnata Machia was published in 1499 by the uh, great printer Aldus Minutius, who uh, created italic type and also created the idea of the, po of the book that will fit in your pocket. He uh, was a printer who popularized um, many classical texts. But this book is, is something different from his press. It doesn't seem to fit into any existing category. And we, the author is disputed and unknown. Oh, wow. But if you look at the first letter of all 36 chapters and spell out those letters, it forms an acrostic. And the crotter... The acrostic reads Frater Franciscus Columna Polion Paramawit, which means Brother Francesco Colonna greatly loved Polia. 
So it's been argued that the um, author was a Dominican monk named Francesco Colonna, who uh, sort of sinned his way up the ecclesiastical hierarchy uh, <laughs> with a very relatively uh, scandalous uh, life as a monk, uh, but who became the preacher at St. Mark's in Venice. And But there's other dis arguments for the author. There's an, Unfortunately, there's another Francesco Cucatilona who's also contemporary, who lives in Farneste, who could also be the candidate. Um, Leon Battista Alberti has been put forward as a candidate. Authorship is disputed. Okay. Um, I lean toward it being the Dominican. And the reason is I think that this book is profoundly spiritual. And it relates to Dominican models of prayer, of surrendering to God, um, of being overwhelmed by emotion in the face of God. And I see traces of Dominican spirituality in the book itself. And that's one of the reasons I think it's the uh, Venetian Colonna. Uh, however, part of my project was sort of saying that authorial intent or even the author or the identity is an avenue that's already been thoroughly investigated. Let's look at the way people actually use the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and, and so let's, let's go there. So, um, as, as, oh, oh, one other thing, one other preface before we go there is, is I, because I, you, you kind of, you mentioned something that, that we passed by, but I don't want to, because I think it's an important part sure. of, of our discussion, which is that it was just recently uh, translated into English in 1999. I mean, here's a 500 year old book that has been talked about, talked to about scholars for, you know, f you know, 500, we're working on 550 years soon. And, 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 uh, and just in 1999, it was it was uh, translated to English. Um, oh, oh, which takes me to language as well. So don't let me forget. Yeah. I want to talk about the the constructed language because I think that's an important part of this. Maybe this discussion. But but why did it take so long? And how is it being affected? Like your work and other people from the Anglo world, Anglicized world. How is it affecting? One of the reasons the translation I think took into English took so long. It went to modern English. There was a 1592 partial English translation into uh, early modern English where the translator Robert Dollington gave up about halfway through. Uh, but the modern translation was so long in coming, partially because the book has usually been admired more as an art object than as a read text. Hmm. So bibliographical connoisseurs are interested in the book for its woodcut, for its beauty, for its elegance. But the text has largely been dismissed as unreadable. But one of the things I find is it's eminently readable and fun. It's opulent. It's over the top. It is a great text for reading aloud. And for that reason, the book didn't have a, because it doesn't fit within an existing genre, it's hard to define. So it's hard to find a category of scholarship to apply to it. Do you apply book history approaches? Do you apply it, uh, Italian studies approaches? And I think Jocelyn Godwin, the translator, who is a, a great scholar of esotericism, uh, did, a, did a great service in making the book a, a text that is readable, uh, highlighting that this is a novel, mm. not just a a visual um, object for admiration. And, and how difficult was it to translate it? Because so, like, 
I've never heard the term constructed language until literally today, just now. So in my mind, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, like most language is done, you know, over time, people talk and they, they you know, words uh, evolve over time into different things. And that's how that's how linguists can go back and, and trace languages back. Mm -hmm. So a constructed, a constructed language, I assume, is, is a language that's the opposite that like uh, um, Tolkien created Elvish or, you know, something like that. Like, like Klingon. Yeah, Klingon. Right, right. So is, is that what we're talking about when we talk about a, a construction, constructed language that this was written in? Pretty close. Uh, constructed languages were uh, a nerdy interest of mine that before I got into the Ranamakia, which drew me in, I was a Tolkien fan and made a half-hearted attempt to learn Sindarin, Elvish. <laughs> um, and then in uh, as an undergraduate, I, I learned Esperanto, okay. uh, one of the attempts at a universal language. So I, I love this idea of looking at language like a toy we can play with, we can manipulate, we can uh, game with. And so when I found that Ranamaka was written in a constructed language, that piqued my curiosity. And by constructed, I mean that it takes latin and greek etymological roots and combines them in ways that are plausible but never actually happened in actual speech wow like one example would be uh saxabondo is one of the words in it which means abounding in rocks okay and so you create these words from compounds that are plausible words that didn't come out in speech and my sup my doctoral supervisor carlo caruso argues that this was an attempt to reconstruct what the earliest stages of romance languages were like, proto-romance. What was it like when the romance languages were emerging out of Latin? And this is it. The other idea is that it's a dream. And in a dream, Freud in the, the interpretation of dreams argues that you can combine, it's dreams are recombinant, like DNA. You can recombine pieces of images, sounds, memories into something entirely new in the dream work. And Giorgio Agamben has argued that that's what the language is, that the language is the language of the dream. Mm. That this is, you're getting a view into, to the extent we can, what it would be like to be inside a, the mind of a Renaissance scholar at night. That's who'd great. spent their life reading Plutarch, spent their life reading uh all the Greek and Latin classics and is dreaming, letting these pieces they've written down in their notebook re reinterpret and roll in on themselves and recombine in their minds. And, and so how, first of all, what is this, is the structure then like, is it Greek? Is it like, like how does that work when you're, when you're trying to read this thing? Like, um, yeah, what's the structure? Of the I mean, we have these words, but how do they put together? They're put together like like Italian. Okay. So there's not case endings, for example. Uh, if you've taken Italian or Latin, it's pretty readable. Okay. But part of the game, I suggest, what makes this an activity book is when you come across an unfamiliar word, picking it apart into its pieces. Right. Um, looking at what roots were thrown together to make this word and how can I deconstruct this word into its components? Right. And well, and then I would, I would assume then the opposite is true is once you've deconstructed it and you kind of know what they're getting at, like why did you have to decide why and how it was put together in the way it was mm -hmm. and what that means? Cause that's a whole other like issue of like, yeah. okay, well, why did you do it this way? And why didn't you, why did you use Greek instead of Roman? Like you could have done it this way. And, and, and why did you make those choices that, that all, 
probably i mean we do that in english that we know pretty well right now mm-hmm. to do it in a in a language that has has no dictionary you know essentially yeah. it's got to be difficult yeah the language is called polyphilesco and i think it's 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 quite beautiful it's it's overwhelming at first but the overwhelm quickly turns into it being just this uh this poetry of just rapturous uh so do you read it have you read like can you if you if i were to give you some of this can you read that and translate that or or with, is that... with, with a commentary and a dictionary yeah i got um, you but uh, a little bit is captured in the translation that the the godwin's translation uh is effective at rendering the sort of super abundance of the language into english prose very good. Okay. So, I mean, we've talked around this thing for a long time. Um, to talk about it itself, like, um, I see you brought uh, a copy of, of the translation there. Like, give us a taste. Like, like what are we, what are we, what, what are we talking about? What's so exciting about this thing? So let's read uh, the first page of the novel. Uh, in this scene, the hero Polyphilo is lamenting his uh, lost beloved polia, which means many things. And it doesn't mean many things, but it literally means many things, polia, poly. Uh, And this is the description of the morning. Phoebus was emerging from the ocean waves at the hour when Leucothea's brow goes bright. The whirling wheels slung beneath his chariot were still out of sight when he appeared dutifully with his flying horses, first Pyrrhus, then Aeus, to tint his daughter's pale quadriga with scarlet roses and to speed after it without delay. His curling hair was already sending its rays scintillating over the restless blue waves. As he arrived at this point, hornless Cynthia was setting opposite, urging on the steeds of her vehicle, which was drawn by a white and dark mule. So you've got this image of the chariot of dawn, uh, but there's at least four classical citations in this. And so readers approach this and play the game of thinking, Where's that citation come from? Am I erudite enough to get the reference? And in that way, it's quite modern. I mean, a lot of humor today is about, did you get the reference to that show? (laughs) And that is what we see here. Do I recognize that Pyrrhus and Aeos are the horses that pull the chariot of the sun? It's like a test for your your erudition. Plus, it's just so over the top. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is over. I mean, it's very like just... Um, yeah, it is. It's it's like, okay, so that's a sunset. You know, where do we go from here? <laughs> sunrise, where do we go from here? You know, that's, that's crazy. Um, what, um, yeah, so th- let's talk about the, the, the story itself. So, so Polyphia, is that right? The poly- Polyphilo. Polyphilo, um, is the main character. Yeah. And is missing and and then is in and yeah talk about the story let's let's talk about that cause. so it's an encyclopedia framed in a love story uh where there's this lover polyphilo he who loves many things um who is seeking after his beloved polia and it's sort of like uh dante's beatrice for example this okay. image of the idealized beloved who symbolizes that which is holy and true that you see in other Renaissance writings. Uh, But he falls asleep in a dream, falls into a sub dream, and then starts to journey through this fantastical landscape, uh, moving toward Polia, where there are an abundance of structures, gardens, inscriptions, 
uh, all in ruinous form. So this landscape symbolizes classical antiquity. And Polyphilo symbolizes the love of Renaissance scholars for that antiquity. Uh, and as he goes through this landscape, Polyphilo continually gets distracted uh, by the buildings he sees, the gardens uh, with all their scents and, and sights that entrance him. And he goes off on tangents. He'll say, I must describe this. Like he'll look at a building and describe the building with all the features that you can see from Vitruvius's on architecture. Then he realizes, oh, I'm getting distracted. <laughs> I have to go back to this, which is why I think this book is the perfect book for someone with ADD because it's about a protagonist wrestling with, it's called cupiditas rerum novarum, the love of new things, right? the love of novelty. And uh, he's continually pursuing this. Then he gets to Polia and the narrative reverses. So now Polia is the narrator. And she speaks in a much more prosaic style okay. and almost sort of like condemning him. Look, look at this silly boy who's in love with me. <laughs> uh, and it is interesting that she is a figment within a dream, but she's given an extended voice. And you can argue, is she a figment in Polyphila's mind or is she someone with uh, agency in her own right? Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Well, yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about. Like are all these things that, how 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 do all these things that we love, you know, uh, have become a life of their own, you mm -hmm. know, and and that kind of idea? Um, this might sound like a silly question, um, but are no silly questions. Okay, so <laughs> by the way, that takes me to a funny story. I don't go for it. This, um, I heard the story of Stephen Meyer. Do you know who he is? He's, I don't. He's a scholar who who wrote um, a signature in the cell, and and um, he he uh, works at the uh, Discovery Institute. Um, but he talked about when he was studying at Oxford mm -hmm. and it's, it's one of my favorite stories I've ever heard. And, and, um, there was a, uh, a, a, a lecture giving a lecture and, 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 uh, and he asked a question and afterwards the, his, his advisor took him aside and he's, and said to him something to the effect of, you know, I know in America, the saying there's they no such <laughs> thing as a stupid question is very popular there. That's not the case here at Oxford. <laughs> oh, I found that at being at a British university. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I bet you did. Yeah. yeah. You better know what you know before you ask me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the idea of my, my stupid question is this. Like, it's uh, that is such an interesting psychological thing of, of a dream and then a sub-dream within the dream. Mm -hmm. it, it, it seems... Um, of course, over the top, which this whole thing is, but but what is there? In the, is there a reason for that? Is there, um, you know, what what do scholars talk about the the like what's going on in the dream itself that that is there's a need for a sub dream? One of the scholars who was really drawn to the Ronnie was Carl Jung, okay, um, who talked about the dream space as a fusing recombinant space uh, akin to the alchemical process. So the way we form dreams is similar to the way gold is synthesized from lead. Um, and why it's necessary to have an inception style sub dream isn't uh, something I'd reflect a lot about, but I think it might be necessary to get that deep into the dream work okay. in order to be able to have no barriers. Um, a scholar named uh, 
her, her name escapes me right now, uh, argued that this book is a, a liberatory space where everything uh, that a Renaissance scholar is expected to know is fused and melded back on itself and mm. combined and recombined. And it might be necessary to be in a subdream to get to that kind of liberation from yeah. constraint. That's that's an interesting was, idea. Yeah, Leanne Lefavre was the scholar who argued that. It just came to mind. Okay, so that I mean that that's actually pretty fascinating. That that yeah, you'd have to get to a place where um, not only are there no limitations, but the limitation, but, but the, the the substance themselves or the ideas themselves have no limitations. Like it's it's yeah, that that's an interesting concept, um, which is very Inception like. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the modern idea of brainstorming of uh generating ideas and what um i argue is that this book was used as a tool for two steps in the rhetorical process invent inventio for the cultivation of ingenio and what that means is uh quintilian and cicero quintilian in his in studio oratoria cicero in his book de topica uh say the first step of composing anything a speech but any artistic work at all is generating ideas. Mm -hmm. How do you come up with anything new to say? And so there, the process is, is called of inventio, or is to bring together different existing components to create something new out of pre-existing pieces. Which is why you need an invented language. I mean, yeah. that, I mean, it really does fall like right into, like it's almost the perfect thing that it, if it had to be a constructed language because it had to mm -hmm. come from these pieces and parts that were already like, I mean, that's a fascinating idea because, um, you know, as a musician, you know, and, and anybody who does anything creative or, or anything, um, like you said, to do something new, like there's no such thing as something new. Yeah. You know, everything, what's new is actually something that's been reconstructed or, or, or has been looked at in a different way. Um, and, and to come up with something, you know, um, actually inventive and, and new, you know, they're, they're really, they're, there's very little of that, you know? Yeah. And the ability to do that in, to come up with something fresh from existing components, uh, in the Renaissance was known as ingenio. Okay. Or in, in the same root as ingenious. Ingenious, yeah. Or the way ingenio was often translated into English was witty. And your wit or your ingenio was understood to be a faculty you could cultivate. Uh, and what I argue is that in this book, the games people play with the text are intended to sharpen sharpen the saw. They're intended to uh, refine your ingenio so you make more effective inventio. Right. Okay. So... Um, so let's, let's go to that. Like we talked, obviously we've talked about a little bit why you have such a passion for this, this text and, and it's clear why you do, but, but, um, and, and we talked about why you decided to study, study the margins. What, um, you know, what were, what maybe give us a, a, a taste of some of the fascinating things that you found, not by the text, but by the margins themselves that that really you went oh my gosh that's that's insane like because that that's where new stuff can come from yeah. where you're like oh i would have never thought of that <laughs> you know yeah. so 
talk talk a little bit about the aspect of that discovery that that you went through as you were studying the the margins. Sure, I can uh, highlight a few annotators and the way they created something new. Uh, one of the annotators was Ben Johnson, a playwright contemporary of Shakespeare, uh, who read a copy of a sec of the later edition, the fifteen forty five edition that's in the British Library, and each annotator in amidst all this overabundance of material has to choose their own adventure in a sense pick pick what what i the analogy i use is it's like walking down a museum and there's side aisles what side aisles do i want to go down which when do i want to stay on the central pattern of the narrative and ben johnson specifically highlights those features that are representable on stage he's interested in uh chariots he's interested in buildings and Ben Johnson collaborated with his friend and later rival Inigo Jones in making elaborate stage designs for his plays. And my argument is that he is using this text for Inwentio. He's using it to come up with new ideas yeah. to put into his plays and, uh, and masks. Uh, another annotator we see doing some pretty fun stuff is uh, Pope Alexander VII in a copy in the Vatican Library, which okay. I had the privilege to see in, in person. Oh, wow. Uh, and it he reads the text as a rhetorical treatise. So he's interested in, in looking at the text for when the author uses certain rhetorical devices. Mm. But Alexander VII also liked to go on sedan chair rides around the Baroque Rome. He is largely the builder of Baroque Rome. And my... The case in the thesis I make in the thesis is that he saw his journey through the fictional space of the Rodomachia in a manner similar to his journeys through the actual space of Baroque Rome. Oh, wow. So as he wandered around Rome looking at structures and buildings, Polyphilo did the same. Because, yeah, you're talking about like Baroqueness, which, which again, you know, um, makes you think of things over the top and, and yeah. oh, you know, crazy, uh, you know, architecture and stuff. Um, what was it? Um, maybe if not inspired, um, you know, did it have an, did this text affect actual uh, architecture and things like that? It did. Um, it's been, there's a garden called Bomarzo, uh in Italy, which has all these fantastic structures that are argued to be inspired by the HP, uh, as I call it for short, spirit, <laughs> spare the pronunciation. Yeah. Uh, uh, Versailles has some features um, based on the Machia. Um, the painter Lesueur illustrated some scenes from the Machia. So it had quite an extended reception, especially uh, in the 19th century, a lot of these arts and crafts movement uh, w woodcut artists like Aubrey Beardsley uh, drew on the Ibnatomachia as well. Um, and the book seems to have had a wide readership. Um, uh, one piece of evidence for that is there's a, a book called by called The Courtier by Castiglione, which is basically a guide to how to be a Renaissance gentleman, okay. how to be a courtier. And one of the phrases he says is when you speak with women, don't woo them like Polyphilo does with with excessive affluent language, and the fact that he, in a popular book like for a broad audience, Castiglione 
would reference Polyphilo shows right. that it has an extensive reception. It wasn't an unread book. Which which goes back to, you know, something we talked about earlier. Like it's it's almost shocking to me that a proper modern English ver- translation wasn't done until almost the 21st century. Yeah. And, and you, you kind of explained why, but that, to me, again, that's still kind of shocking. Like, mm-hmm. like, and I get it. Like uh, English isn't the end all be all, you know, in, in other words, there's plenty of scholars that will are happy to learn Italian and happy to do what it takes to, to, to do this. But it's just, it, it just surprised. It, I guess the biggest surprise to me is I find English to be, um, the most universal of languages, mm-hmm. not just because I'm an American, but because it is so easy. Like, for example, how easy is it to to turn Google into a verb like that? Yes. It happened like that. It, it, it is. Um, and I know it, when English was, was starting to to come of age, that it was like a literal new technology that people were using this to to be able to communicate in new and strange ways that 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 were easily done in English that couldn't be done in other languages. So it just, it's kind of shocking to me that it took so long to get a good English translation. Especially because since you see attempts in early modern English to copy the polyphilesque style. Huh. Um, one, uh, another uh, near contemporary of Shakespeare was John Lilly, uh, the playwright who wrote in a style called euphuism. And euphuism is elaborate, florid, excessive language. Uh, and he, what I think is that euphemism in part is trying to take the polyphilesque mode and bring it into English. English. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so we've talked about this as kind of a game at which I, I love mm-hmm. that idea and as a test, um, all of these things I, I can, I can absolutely see was the, the text or are the, the um, people that are playing the game, are they trying to get to the bottom of something um, or are they playing the game and then coming up with ideas and, and kind of going on that way? In other words, is there, is there a route to this thing that, that, that people are trying to get to? Well, there was a novel written about this. Okay. Uh, the novel is called The Rule of Four. Uh, came out in 2006 by Ian Caldwell and Dustin Thomason, who took as their, their concept for the novel that there's a code behind the okay, right on, <laughs> and the code uh not to spoil the novel has has to deal with uh savonarola burning the books in the bonfires of the vanities okay. and trying to save the legacy of antiquity uh i'm not convinced though there isn't the acrostic of the first 36 chapters which is is wild enough i don't think there's one unified code or i don't think that there's a key to crack this text i think it's it's much too excessive for that it overflows any boundary we put on it because because it is in other words it is it is an encyclopedia in other words it's not it's not trying to like um you know go deep into something it's trying to say how can all of these parts be used together and i and i use superficially very like uh, that's not the best word to use, but, 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 but it is like, um, it seems to me as, as you're describing it, like to be, um, uh, how much do you know and how can you work, um, intellectually with all these component pieces? Doing this 
becomes your own refinement of your own ingenio. Oh, that's because you're trying to cope with cope with excess. The word that they use is copia, cope with there being just too much to handle, uh, and that stretches stretches you. Um, I think I, I grew a lot in in studying this book. Um, one of the point you mentioned earlier about whether being is there a subcode, is there a, is there a yeah. bottom to this? There certainly was the idea in the 17th century that there was, because there were alchemical readers of the text who read the book as an allegory of the alchemical great work, and viewed the text as uh, allegorizing some kind of alchemical process. Okay. Now, whether or not that was Colonna's intent. Uh, is questionable, but it's certainly the way some early annotators, including the one in the Buffalo Library, uh, <laughs> saw the text um, as allegorizing the great work because there was this idea in the Renaissance called the Prisca Sapientia, which is the ancient wisdom, that there is a deep ancient core of wisdom that has been transmitted from age to age. And the representative text for that is the uh, t- Emerald Tablet, which was translated by Isaac Newton. Uh, which is thought to allegorize alchemy. And the idea was the more complex, the more unreadable it is, the more ancient it is, therefore the more accurate it is. Yeah, yeah. That seems to be the case for a lot of those esoteric folk. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, it's got to be, yeah. Like, like it's very Gnostic in that way. Yes. You know, where it's this hidden knowledge that, that will... Um, if not save you, it will, it will at least bring you gold. <laughs> um, that that's interesting. That's wild. Um, taught, yeah, maybe maybe this go there for a second, just because it's fun and and sure. who, who doesn't love you know good cults and good esotericism? Like what are who are who are some of the groups that you know you know you you know you love the Illuminati, you love group, you know those are just such fun groups to talk about. But but. Um, how did some of these groups view this text, uh, if if at all? And um, yeah, and, and and go there for well, a second. Well, one uh, distant connection between esotericism, but it's a, it's a line you can trace, is with Aleister Crowley, who uh, created a religion called Thelema, which means will. And in he got that phrase from Rabelais, who in Gargantua and Pantagruel created an, ab, um, an abbey of Thelem. Uh, but Rabelais got the word Thelema, will, from the Mnodomachia, which has a nymph called Thelema. There's two nymphs, Thelema and Logistica, uh, logic or reason, yeah. who lead on Polyphilo. Oh, that's so but, cool. But he has to learn to stop listening to Logistica and start listening to love. So there's this argument to convert yourself over to love. So I just think that, that it's interesting how Crowley was able to take that word Thelem and move it on forward. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Uh, what? Okay. By the way, and by this is my ADD talking right now. That's okay. Like you'd say one thing, I'm like zing squirrel. Um, we haven't even touched like all the characters, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that we can't touch all the characters. But talk about like we talked about. Um, talk about the characters. Who are they? And and who do we see so uh, that are that are um, engaging with Polyphia? Well, one of the things that's neat about the book is that there's uh, relatively few characters. Okay. Um, Polyphilo and Polia 
are well developed, but everyone else is like an NPC, is like a, a set piece. <laughs> um, there are a number of nymphs who he encounters who both tempt Polyphilo away from Polia or lead him on towards her. Um, there's one great scene where they meet Queen Eliu Terelida, which means Queen Free Will, and uh, have a dialogue with her on the nature of, of free will and should we su submit ourselves to love, which is one of the reasons I think the book is Dominican, because there's this constant Dominican spirituality of giving yourself over yeah. uh, to love. Uh, but the world he travels through is a very empty one. It's a world of ruins, uh, a world of uh, lamentation for what wow. antiquity was. And the, with the hope that we can recover it and the knowledge that we can't. So like, it's almost like a post apocryphal, like, like if, 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 if we were to watch like, um, you know, some, yeah, some, some, some movie that, that took place in, in 3200, but it was maybe like Anthem or something yeah. like that, you know, where, where it's, you know, post nuclear Holocaust and, and we're walking through this. That's the kind of feeling that you get as you read through this. It's, it's I, very like crumbled, uh, a society that has, has crumbled and died. I really appreciate that post-apocalyptic. I never thought of it that way, but it really is. It works quite well um, as an analogy because he's moving through the ruins of a world that the Renaissance humanists wanted to restore, but no, and to some degree is unrecoverable. And that sense of vastness and loss is kind of what I think that Pope Alexander VII did in his copy in the Vatican Library. Because as he's traveling through Rome on his sedan chair, uh, viewing the ruins of, of antiquity, uh, he's having that experience like Polyphilo. He's like seeing this lost world, but trying to restore it as he can. Like one of the things that Pope Alexander VII liked to do was collect obelisks from uh, Egypt and, and set them up in Rome. So you get that sense of the restoration yeah. of antiquity as well to the greatest extent possible. But the Renaissance humanists were the ones who coined the phrase dark age. And the, the phrase, the dark, uh, whole concept of the dark ages is moving out of scholarship. People tend to say early middle ages now because there's even a book called the bright ages about how much right. intellectual activity there was in the so-called dark ages. But the Renaissance humanists uh, saw the fall of Rome as entering a period of bleakness for which they were the restorers. And when I say humanist, I mean a, a scholar of the humanities. Humanist in this concept hasn't taken on this, the secular connotations it has today. Gotcha. Okay. Um, we, and by the way, that that kind of, I was thinking about this before, but, but you have this book that was probably written um, by a monk or some somebody within the mm -hmm. priesthood. Um, you, you have... Um, in, a, in, a, in a time that was, you know, very religious at a, um, you know, but at the same time was, was restoring, as you mentioned before, like these pagan ideals and these mm -hmm. kind of, um, you know, old classical ideas. Um, where does God, if at all, play a role in this text? Um, or, or, or have people tried to, to, to work him in there somewhere? God, as in, uh, you know, Yahweh, does not appear in the a book anywhere. Um, 
Jupiter is figured prominently. Okay. Um, and Jupiter, uh, who is often called Dispater, uh, the father of the gods or the father of day, depending on how you want to re- render it. And you see annotators rendering it both ways, uh, figures prominently in the book. Um, but you do see a lot of th- theology, especially sort of Aristotelian, Thomistic theology uh, in, the start, in, the, in the vein of Thomas Aquinas. Um, like there's one monument he comes to, which shows the, uh, the models of the irascible soul, the concupiscent soul, and the, the rational soul. So the author of this is familiar with theology. Um, he also adopts modes of prayer uh, which are uh, very, in a sense, uh, self-surrendering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another feature is that the author of this book loves uh, liturgical equipment, uh, like you'd see in a Catholic church, uh, chalices, candelabras, uh, tabernacles. Mm. There's one sentence where he basically comes up upon a group of nuns of Venus and describes their church. But whoever did this knows Catholic liturgical accoutrements very well. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I think that this is a work of Christian humanism. But there's also an Islamic influence. Uh, there is Arabic text in the book. And there's one scene where the uh, nuns of Venus are bent over in prayer in a manner that looks like uh, Islamic genuflecting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, are, is, is, is the same person that wrote the text the same person that did the uh, wood carvings? No, uh, but they were working closely together. Okay. Uh, the, the woodcut artist is unknown. It's been argued it was uh, Mantegna, uh, but it's as yet been as yet unknown. Uh, we don't know who did the typeset. It was Francesco Griffo. Um, and that typeset that you see in the book is the model for the polyphilus font in Adobe PageMaker. <laughs> if you remember that? Yes. And, uh, and the Bembo font, uh, both come from the HP. <laughs> but I do think that the interact section of an interaction of word and image is so close that the author had to be alive to see it through the press without this. Mm. Uh, part of the argument of Leon Lefavre is that the author was Leon Battista Alberti who a great Renaissance architect and scholar who died 17 years before it was published. So I don't think this book was done posthumously. Yeah. Um, I really think that Colonna and Aldous Minutius were working closely together and making this happen. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Man, I I feel like I'm at, I'm at, I'm at kind of a point where like, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. You know, so, so I, I want to finish with this and, and then maybe add some more added things if you'd like, but, but how does it end? <laughs> does he just wake up and like, Hey, we're back. He, like, <laughs> he, he wakes up after the dream. Uh, Polyphilus encounters Polia uh, in, in Kithra, the realm of Venus. Uh, they have this reunion uh, kind of like Dante reuniting with Beatrice. And then he wakes up. Oh, wow. And he wakes up and uh, it says, Flor sic exicatus nunquam reviviscit. A flower thus dried up will never be revived. And it ends on that sad note. And it ends in 1467, which might be the date that the actual girl who's thought to have inspired Polia died. Died. Wow. 
That's interesting. Um, which made me, it just actually made me think of another thing. Like, cause we talked like, uh, when I, when I did my interview with, um, Michael Ward about C.S. Lewis and, and, uh, um, and his great book, which is the planet Narnia. Um, you know, I didn't realize how influential the planets were to the medieval mind. Um, and, and does that go back to, because it's, that's also something that fascinated the classicist or, um, is that, you know, is that relatively unique? How much that, that, the planets and the the idea that that they affected us and that they um played a role in our lives um you know how 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 much does that affect both in the book but but also to like kind of a medieval scholar or, or a medieval person of the day there is a diagram of the planets in no this. way there uh, has of course there is there, there has to be there it I'm trying to find it right now, but I think it's, if I remember correctly, it's in the, the nunnery of Venus. Okay. Where the diagram of the planets exists. Uh, so there, I don't know to what extent there's an astrological influence. It's not something I've looked into in depth, but it would be a really cool avenue for investigation. Um, one thing that I wanted to be sure to mention before we go, because you're a musician, is this book is fascinated with musical modes. Hmm. It uh, will describe, always say, when you come upon the nymph singing a piece of music, he'll always say it's Mixolydian or it's Lydian. And there's an association in the Renaissance mind with emotions associated with given modes. Right, right. The idea that some modes could even drive you mad. Yeah. And uh, that is part of the the argument of giving yourself over to love. That's very interesting. Okay, yeah. I mean, sold. No, that's pretty cool because, because that does... Um, it, you, that idea does translate so clearly even to today. Um, you know, we, we don't really talk in, in fact, we do actually more talk about the church modes, um, uh, more and more, um, these days, cause, especially cause of jazz music, cause they mm-hmm. use it quite a bit, but, um, but the idea that it gives you a certain feeling that it gives a certain idea, um, you even see that like in, um, how pianos were tuned, you know, yeah. in the, the, the early and, and mid 19th century, you know, uh, there's a reason why Chopin used B minor for his funeral march. Yeah, know, certainly. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's, and it's hard to recreate that on a modern piano. Um, and, and not that we should necessarily, but it's, it's interesting. Like all of these things play a role. So that, that's fascinating that, that, um, that, 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 that is, um, prominent in this book Mm -hmm. very cool well dr russell james my friend thanks for for coming back and my pleasure we got to do it again like i feel like now i now i have enough to like i can engage a little bit and maybe have some additional questions and and some more dialogue i'd love to to be glad to because i know i know we haven't even touched the surface (laughs) yeah if you are a student looking for something new to study consider the neuronomachia polyphily this surface has barely been scratched there's so much more to be done on this book um by the way you having said that is that i know that you said that's true and i know it's true but but like we have all these scholars that have studied it to a certain degree anciently um but then did that just fall out of favor? Did it get lost? Like, like how did the, how did it become now? Um, and yeah, yeah. Talk about why, 
why hasn't why didn't the scholarship just continue on one of the problems is the 19th century idea of book collecting where 19th century collectors valued pristine copies and they would see marginal notes as vandalism whereas now we see them as abundant evidence for reader networks and reader interaction and that could have led to copies being lost or washed or uh, otherwise clipped. And this book is yeah. meant to be marginalized and, you know, it's it meant to have... It invites know. the reader to do so. It, it has, in the imperative mo- mood, gives instructions, draw this. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Um, oh, that uh, that actually made me think of one other thing. If, if you're, like, if you're reading a, a, a um, I don't know, whatever edition (laughs) that you happen to have Mm -hmm. um would that get passed down so for example would you be reading a book and you're seeing these notes and maybe you think it's one scholar but maybe it's somebody else like how often does that happen that you have to translate because the the edition has been passed down from one person to another um there are a few modern editions to compare uh one by pozzi and Ciaponi, one by um ariani and gabriele so I would look at the 1964 edition, the 1980 edition, and then Jocelyn Godwin's 1999 edition and compare between them. And then treat the early modern annotators as almost like a fourth set. Mm. So to put them all in conversation with each other. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Well, man, let's do this again. I like that. <laughs> let's do it again. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. James Russ. Oh, if people want to find out more what you're doing, like, do you have any projects? Is there anything that you're working on? Um, you know, in the next 10 years. <laughs> sure. You can, uh, you can Google James Russell, uh, I'm sure the spelling will be in the show notes yeah. to, uh, find my PhD thesis. I'm on the social network Mastodon at, at Dr. James Russell. And, uh, I'm working on turning my doctoral thesis into a book. So I'll, uh, I'll let you know when that, if and when that, that book contract becomes solid. That sounds good, man. That'd be great. Thanks for being on. We'll do it again. Sounds good. Mike is gone. You are listening to And If Love Remains. Gone but not forgotten. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization.